This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is The Bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One for the Road, which can be purchased via Amazon. It covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, share and leave a review. Our amazing sponsors for this season are Tweak Life. Do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at SoberDave. My guest today on my brand new season of One for the Road has completely transformed her life by giving up the booze. And back in October this year, she celebrated 300 days without alcohol. I love talking to her during this episode, and I hope you really enjoy listening. So please give it up for the wonderful Kate Taylor. So welcome to my podcast, Kate, One for the Road, and you are episode one of season eight. I can't believe this is the eighth season, and I'm so glad that you're on because I've watched your journey progress over the days, like you celebrated the other day, 300 days, and what I love about you is you're so honest about everything really uh, and that's what people really appreciate because um, we all like the truth don't we and no fluff around it so thank you for joining me today well thank you for having me on as as people know by now the format is that we like to wind it back to the beginning uh, so we can find out a little bit more about you so are you okay with that yeah fine good where did it all begin well where did it all begin I mean I think probably I was born in Bishop Stortford um, and then moved on to Battersea pretty quickly. But I think to get a clear picture of me, you probably need to understand a bit about my parents and my background. Because I think when people talk about their childhood, you can imagine it. But then when you explain their parents weren't from England and you explain a bit about 
where they were from, you can start to really imagine what a household was actually like. Um, and I'm the second child of four. My parents had four kids in five years. Um, and my mum is from a very, very poor family in Kentucky. And, you know, I grew up hearing about the fact that she couldn't afford toothpaste and that her mum used to take her on holidays in the car and drive all night while the, while the girls slept in the back and then park under a tree and sleep while my mum got to explore a new town. Um, she really did have nothing. Um, and my dad is from an almost arist- aristocratic family. Um, he's directly related to one of the presidents. He lived in a sort of 14 bedroom house in Connecticut. His dad was a diplomat. They are completely different ends of the spectrum, but they're both American and they joined the Peace Corps during the Vietnam War and met in Ethiopia, where they lived for a couple of years. And then they decided to move uh, to England rather than to go back to the States for various reasons. And um, so we were brought up here, but all of my relatives, my aunts, uncles, grandparents, um, all of their support networks were over there. So we were quite a close family because we were the ones that weren't in the States. Um, and luckily, we were a big family. So we grew up in a, in a very sort of tight knit group. And I had a really happy childhood. I mean, I hear a lot of stories of people going through awful trauma and, and terrible things as kids that you can you can sort of understand what led them to drinking. And I feel a bit embarrassed because I didn't have, have that. I had such a lovely family. I had the support. I had um, food on the table. I had, you know, my own bedroom. I lived in a nice part of London. But I grew up, I definitely was different to the others in my family. And, and I remember my mum. I've got a very weird relationship with my mum. We're not that close. We're closer now. But she used to tell me I was a changeling. And she said, you know, magical creatures sometimes exchange their children for the real children in the middle of the night. And you're one of those. You know, I'll never really understand you. And she told me that when I was six, seven years old, um, which which is a bit odd, but it kind of explains how I felt. I I was definitely different. I was very creative as a child. I didn't focus very well on stuff. And I know that's a common theme that you hear with people when it comes to drinking when they get older. And I can definitely relate to that. Um, When I was 21, my mum said, I never thought you'd live to 21. I just, from the day you were born, I thought this one isn't going to live long. I mean, again, a really strange thing to say to your child. Um, But I think she's always just been a bit unsure. She didn't understand me. Um, but apart from that weird relationship, I grew up in in quite a happy in quite a happy home. My parents were great in that with their four kids, they looked at us and they chose schools for us. So we didn't all just go to the local school. We all went to schools that suited our personalities. And because I was not academic at all, they sent me to something. It was called a progressive school, I think. You know, there were about twelve kids in a class. We had goats roaming around the field. If we wanted to, we could go out climb a tree and read a book it wasn't really focused on academia there were lots of actors kids it was in Hampstead in London it was called King Alfred's it's still going and it's still very popular but they sent me there and and actually it saved me because they basically said to me you know you don't learn like everyone you have to understand yourself you have to let your own um your own ways of living you need to focus on them and develop them you do not have to fit into a box you know and this is why my siblings would have three or four hours of homework at night highly academic they've all got master's degrees whatever and I was there in this kind of place that said be who you want Kate 
And and it gave me the freedom and and critically the confidence to say, I'm okay, I can do whatever I want and I'll be okay. And I became a very inquisitive child. I was I was always much more interested in people and what they did and, and how they got out of difficult situations. And I think when you're not academic, you really have to work on another part of your personality and you have to be observant because I had to be around very, very clever people and I had to be able to hold a conversation and I wasn't academic. So I had to work out how to say things. I had to observe people, understand it. And and that is really how I've carried on throughout my life. Um, You know, I find the world fascinating um, and the reasons that people do the things they do. But in a way, that was the scary thing because also I always jumped headfirst into everything and thought, I'm going to see how I get out of this. I'm going to see if I can find my way home from this really dangerous situation. And I've done that all my life. I remember doing things like that when I was 10, when I was 11, when I was 12. And of course, when you get older, the situations become more and more dangerous. But I've just always been like that. I never listen to myself. I never say now, is this going to be good for me? Is this going to be dangerous? Is this going to leave me in trouble? I go, I'm just going to do it. I know I'm going to be able to work out how to get back. And actually, I've I've never been scared of dying. I've never been scared of injuring myself. And again, that's great in one way, because I've done so much. You know, I'm in my 40s and I feel like I've lived five lives. But in another way, I really am lucky to be alive because it's stupid to think like that all the time. Um, So I, I grew up in a big house in Hampstead Garden Suburb. My dad was a very successful publisher. So our house was full of people. We would have sort of Roald Dahl would be there for lunch. I'd have Sunday lunch with Doris Lessing. Um, Laurie Lee walked in on me in the bath once while he was looking for the toilet. (laughs) It really was a house of dreams. It was like Mrs. Magical's house. Always people coming in. Our door didn't have a proper lock. You just banged it above the door handle. And so many children, all the neighbours were always there. It was incredible it was just fascinating for someone like me it was perfect it was buzzing it was incredible but I also have my mum who's this woman who doesn't like money she doesn't like fame she felt out of place so she would make us sort of bake cookies for the Ethiopian children and I'd have to carry them around to my rich neighbours and say will you please buy some cookies for the Ethiopians and I was mortified it was so embarrassing but actually if you think about the juxtaposition between those two types of parents, it gave me this incredible confidence and grounding. And I really felt like I understood these two different parts of the world and then how to live. And I had real empathy for people. You know, I never took I never took for granted what I had. I really did wake up every day and think, I'm so lucky, you know, and that's that's unusual for a child. And I found that out because I didn't find many people who thought like me. Um, And I would always love speaking to adults when my friends would not even be able to make eye contact with them. I'd just go up and sit next to them and didn't matter if they were famous. You know, I'd sat next to Bob Geldof and just started chatting away. No idea who he was. And then when people said, oh, you know, I was like, so what? Everyone's the same. He doesn't matter. So life went on like that. It was full of alcohol in my house. That's where the word comes in, doesn't it? It was gin and tonics before dinner, wine with dinner, whiskey. And pretty much everyone drank. Um, It was never referred to as something bad. It was always something that adults did and that I would be able to do one day. You know, we had a kind of a liquor cabinet full of these colourful things. It was like a sweet shop 
for adults. Um, and it was just amazing. And everyone did it. All these people I admired that I respected that everyone else seemed to respect, they all drank. So for me, it was obvious as soon as I'm old enough, that is where I'm at. I'm going to join these people. I'm going to be really good at drinking and I cannot wait. And I've heard you ask people before, like, when was your first drink? And I I can't remember. That's that's the truth. I I remember having sips of wine at kind of Friday night dinner and being allowed to. I remember being in Italy and saying, oh, children are allowed to drink here. And people going, well, have a glass of wine then. But I don't remember the first time I drank. I just feel like I always have. And I know I was getting drunk when I was 14, but I, I definitely had a drink before that at home. And quite frankly, no one would have cared or noticed if I had. So I'm sure I was sneaking bits here and there. But I didn't get drunk when I, when I was a kid, but I definitely got a taste for it. When I was about 13, my dad um, said, we're getting divorced, um, which I kind of suspected based on sort of the arguments that were going on. But he sat me down and he said, look, I, I need to tell you something And I'm very, very close to my dad. We're very similar, which is why I think my mother didn't like me very much. (laughs) And he just said, look, I'm gay, basically. Um, I don't know how else to say it. I always have been. Um, And I just sort of said, that's so awful for you. I can't believe you've been forced to get married and have children. And he burst into tears. You know, he thought I would be mortified, confused. And I just thought, how awful, Um, And I just said, are you okay?" And that was basically an explosion. He told me a few months before he told my siblings. and I I still haven't really discussed with him why that was or or with my siblings about that. But he moved away pretty quickly. He moved to Paris. And that's when things really changed. I was left with a mother who I didn't really get on with, who I didn't think liked me very much. And I reminded her of my father. I look like him. I act like him. And she moved to Mill Hill. He moved to Paris. And that's when I started really drinking because I just didn't want to be at home. I would get super tenants, you know, that disgusting stuff that you really shouldn't start with. But that's what we used to drink because I always looked much older than I was. So I would buy cans for my friends and we'd break into the local school playing field, smoke, drink, put music on until we ran out. And then we'd stumble home. Um, And we did that whenever we could, really, you know, three or four times a week. I'd be out on the weekends. And even then... I would wake up and think I can't remember big chunks of the night, you know, bearing in mind that was me when I was about 14. But but you know what you you said right in the beginning that um, you, how you framed it, it was that you, you had quite a normal upbringing, um, no real trauma, but there's several parts of it that I've picked out of, you know, reasons for maybe, you know, like your mum, what she said, you won't live long, um you're a changeling the kind of flamboyant lifestyle you grew up in you know all these people thespians like drinking gin and tonics and that you you come across as like being older for your years back then anyway you know so that probably moved things on and then your dad coming out as gay when you're 13 these are all signs in your life that would lead you towards that and then when you said your mum probably didn't like you because you reminded her of um your dad is like there's rejection there do you know what i mean and then you know from like similar to me at 14 my mum and dad split up as well and that changed everything for me because i i didn't know where i fitted 
in the family or in society and that, you know, and it was safe for me to start drinking because I felt included part of something. So it's interesting when we pick things apart, actually, there are nuggets of things where actually it wasn't straightforward. No, you're right. And I'm sure I need to go into, uh, I need to have some sort of therapy to, to work through this. But I think when I think back about it, I feel like I was lucky. And maybe that's what I've told myself. Uh, maybe it was material goods that I said I'm lucky because I kept being told you have more than so many people in the world. You are lucky, you know, and and, and I've always worked very hard. I've always been very grateful for what I have. But you're right. It was you know, but every family is like that. They've all got skeletons in their closets, don't they? And um, I never felt really kind of hit by something. Maybe it was because it trickled through and I was very wise, um, a wise child. And, and I was always someone who looked out for myself. I never relied on anyone. And maybe, maybe I had to become that person rather than I just was that person. And maybe that is something that I need to, you know, one, when you go, when you stop drinking, you start looking with clarity at your life. And I can't remember a lot of my life with clarity. I can't tell you the years I did this. You know, I'm really hoping you don't say to me, when did you do this? Because I'll say, I don't know. Without looking at my CV, I cannot piece it together. And I don't know if that's normal, but it's all a blur. Um, and the years blend together. I think I lived here for two years. And, and my childhood is a bit like that. And I'm sure we take bits and bobs out of it. But I certainly don't look back at my childhood and feel like it was a bad time. I feel like I was lucky and I was happy. And if you said, was there something you feel that was traumatic? I I, I felt sorry for my dad when he told me about being gay. I certainly didn't feel sorry for me. It didn't affect me at all. He was still exactly the same person. And he was splitting up with my mother, but they fought a lot. So actually it would have been, it was going to be better. So I didn't see that as bad. But I think maybe when you're empathetic and you're constantly thinking about other people, you then probably do take their trauma on, don't you? And maybe that is is what happened. You know, I, I, I did turn to drink and I love drinking because drinking numbed everything. You know, my brain has always gone so quickly and it has. But that's bode really well for me in my job because I'm a writer now and I'm very creative and I need that but I need it to stop sometimes because it's exhausting and I get so tired and and I'm definitely someone who has used alcohol to self-medicate as it were. Um, It wasn't something I thought I need a drink. I need a drink. I'm shaking. It was definitely, I want to drink because I want the effect of it now. And I want it hard. You know, I didn't start drinking slowly and then build it up through my twenties. I started drinking hard from the beginning, as soon as I was allowed to, and I carried on. And it's quite terrifying to think about how much I drank. I used to go, I don't get hangovers. And of course I didn't. I was drunk every night. My body was just always used to it. I didn't have a chance to get a hangover. because it was- No, but you know what you said in the beginning about, you know, you used to push yourself out of your comfort zone, yeah. like challenge yourself. And maybe that's part of it where you, it's all or nothing. You know, I, I was a bit like that. And it's like, I'm going to go hell for leather here and see how messed up I can be and then still get up and go to work two hours later and still do this, still do that, because I'm Superman and whatever. Um, and what you say about also um, with your mind, I can tell you think about everything. You know, I can work that out straight away, which we move on later to talk about 
how you I believe you've used that in in your sobriety but it's I have a completely overactive mind my mind is like always ticking around ticking around someone to say something I'm hyper analyzing it working this angle out what and it sounds like you're the same so when we drink it slows that down doesn't it it's like a radio that you turn it down and then oh, I can't really hear it anymore, so I feel now relaxed, I can unwind and whatever. But we also know that at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's right up at full volume. Yeah. Is that how it was? Yeah, I think of those, you know, those photos um, of sort of those opium dens in Thailand and there's these people just laying all over the place with Mm. these little pipes. That's how I almost imagined I was inside. It just gave me, I like a zombie. Um, And I didn't care because I knew that in order to be alert the next day and to deal with the next day, I needed that. That's what I thought, Um, you know, and of course that carried on. You know, I I then, I did my A-levels. My dad moved back from Paris and I moved out to Sirencester because I wanted to just live with him instead of my mother because um, I knew I'd just be able to do whatever I wanted. And I lived for two years in Sirencester in a house. He, was, he wasn't there very often. Um, he was the managing director of WH Smith, and he would travel all the time. And I lived on my own in this lovely house, and I went to college. I, had, I would see people at college wearing my clothes, and i kind of go, is that mine? And they're like, yeah, we were at your house last night, great party. And I'm like, I don't even know who you are. It was mayhem for two years. I, did, I didn't learn anything, but I wasn't academic. I knew I wasn't going to university and I just had fun. And then I left and I thought, right, now I'm going to get a job. And I was really excited. I'm, I'm a really hard worker. And, and until recently, I've, I've been a real morning person. doesn't matter how much I have drunk, how drunk I've got, when I've gone to bed, I would get up at seven o'clock. I'd be the first at work and I'd work hard. I didn't miss days off. I had to keep that in line. I was proud of the fact that I was a hard worker. And part of me wanted to have a career. But it's weird because I look back now and I think, what did I do? 20 years, I didn't do anything. I fueled my drinking by working and spending the money. I haven't achieved anything. I've got a good job and I've got kids and and, and a husband. But all of those years are so wasted. I can't remember anything other than different pubs in different cities in different countries different drinks different people different boyfriends but it's all the same over and over again and I just cannot believe I did it for so long you know I then I got bored so I've got an American passport so I moved to New York for two years and again I worked in a film company on Broadway I worked in a clothes shop on Madison Avenue I hung out with Irish people because the Americans looked at me wide eyed when they saw how much I drank. So I found Irish people who drank the same as me. I did that for two years. Again, didn't achieve anything apart from life experience, which, you know, when I was saying I was younger and I found people fascinating Mm. and I kind of carried that on way too long. And I use that as an excuse. You know, by now I'm, I'm I turned 21 when I was in New York. And I was still sort of saying, I just, I'm, I like observing people. I mean, come on, that's, it's, that's not a career. You've got to grow up. You can't just sit around observing people unless you've got so much money that you really can. But I didn't, you know, and I, I came back and I got a job working for, uh, working in publishing um, on Old Street in London. And honestly, Dave, 
I spend the next 10 years doing the same stuff. And it's really embarrassing to say it now because at the time, you know, I was, I was popular. I was good fun. I'm a positive person. I'm good company. Um, I had lots of friends and I partied, but actually what did I do that I'm proud of? I cannot name a single thing in that, in the whole of my twenties, I had fun, but that's it. I was good at my job. I wrote Disney comics. I wrote books. I, I edited books. But alcohol was the number one thing on my list every day. It was the focus. And at the end of the day, where was I going? Because it was going to be a bar or it was going to be a pub or someone's house or a restaurant. And, you know, I've heard people talk about the the time when they started drinking alone at home. I always drank alone at home. I, I would, you know, when I was doing my A-levels, I'd open a bottle of wine. And when I was having lasagna for dinner on my own, studying it was no big deal it's like well that's what people do so I never even saw that that wasn't a a warning sign it's like well of course people drink at home what's weird about that that's sophisticated so alcohol again it was never it was just it was just always there it was part of who I was but I was you know I remember falling through a glass shower door at my then boyfriend's house late one night and then in the morning I woke up with cuts and stuff and and I couldn't really remember what happened and he just looked at me and said you need to get that replaced today and he went to work and I went into the bathroom and saw it and kind of remembered what had happened you know and then I went to the I snuck into the Groucho club once with some friends and I came out and got hit badly by a car and ended up in hospital and the doctor said you you should have broken your arms and legs but you were so drunk you were floppy and you just rolled off the car these things happened to me and dangerous things I ended up in heroin dens in Tottenham at two o'clock in the morning because I met someone in the pub who became my best friend because she wanted to carry on drinking and everyone else went home and I got on the tube with her it's terrifying and I look back and think, why did I never say maybe alcohol's the problem here? Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. Is, is it because I loved it so much? Yeah. I couldn't, you know, is that? I relate to that. Um, I was in Covent Garden the other day, uh, and I think there's a pub there called the Duke of Wellington. And I remember being there, uh, all my mates have gone home. Like, we've been on it all day. And I was like, now what are you going home for? And I met this dude there that was obviously dodgy like he was dodgy um and I I ended up staying with him for like two hours and I thought the other day I god knows what what I was thinking really you know I kind of felt like when I was drunk I had this wall of protection around me but it was the opposite I was really vulnerable and and I wasn't you know I was so drunk that I wasn't thinking straight at all uh and and then I started to think about all the other times and it's scary so um so at what point then did you realize actually it's quite serious in your life I think when I got into my 30s and I've heard you mention Russian roulette before and I've used that all my life because my friends loved having me there but I could tell that they were starting to think please don't let it be one of those nights where Kate's eyes turn and we know we're going to not be able to move her off the floor we won't be able to get her home or wherever we are and she'll ruin the night. And I could see that. And I could see them worrying about it. And that made me angry, because I was embarrassed, basically. And I can say that now. But back then, I couldn't, I had to turn it into something else, because I couldn't admit it. 
And I, you know, my my relationships were all based on alcohol and then they blew up and, and the anger. And I just thought, this isn't me. I, this isn't, I don't actually know who I am. And I was aware I was drinking all the time. Um, and I, I actually met, I met someone who drank a lot um, and actually someone I'd gone to college with. And we started a relationship and we both were heavy drinkers and we'd have these rows that were pointless, jealousy. And it was all based on alcohol. And we said, right, let's leave. Let's leave England. I'm a writer. He's a primary school teacher. And so we got the first job he could get. And we moved to Italy. And I genuinely thought this will be a, a new start. I need to really step away from alcohol and see what I'm capable of. Um, and as it turned out, I'd only been going out with him about four months and I found out I was pregnant two weeks before we moved to Italy. I'd never lived with him before, four months dating. And I was like, um, but we went anyway, of course, because I wanted to go, right, let's see how I deal with this situation. I don't speak Italian. I'm pregnant. I don't know anyone in Italy. Let's do it. But it meant I didn't drink for nine months. Um, so that that was good. But after my son Luca was born, I just started again as soon as I was able to. And it, and I did think, why do I give up alcohol? Because I don't want to harm my baby. But yeah, I'm willing to do this to myself. Because the fact that I've said I'm not drinking because I know it's dangerous means that I am aware it's dangerous. But it's okay. I'm someone's child. But it's all right for me to do it. And, and these sort of thoughts and being a mother and who do I want to be? What do I want them to see? those thoughts started going through my head. So I would say it was when I had a child and I moved to Italy, that's when I really had to start facing. And also I was getting older. It was starting to be embarrassing. I, I, you know, it wasn't cool anymore. The people I knew did not drink as much as I did every night. They drank a couple of times a week. They didn't have a problem. And I was just still drinking all the time. So it's really uh, two things. It's, it's, goes to show the power of the mind when I often talk to women when they say, oh, I'll become pregnant. And, and I say, so you stopped for nine months about even there being a single issue there. No, I just stopped. And then, you know, you have the baby and then it's all wet the baby's head. Just have a drink and, what, and they start again. That's the power of the mind, right? That you can actually just stop, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and also the other point I was going to make is where where I talk to a lot of people where they have real problems with drinking is that people that don't reach a certain age that they naturally it, it fizzles out. Do you know what I mean? Responsibilities of job, marriage, kids, and, and it all slows down with us. It doesn't. And we carry on like these Trojans that we believe we are in our head marching up the mountain we can still do it we're there it's an eye-opener isn't it you know I always remember I read Jimmy Nell's um autobiography right and and he was in a club he was about mid-40s right and he was absolutely blotto and as he left one of the bouncers said and I can't do a Geordie accent but he, he said hey Jimmy lad I knew a bit old for this kind of thing. And it made him really, really think, Jesus, I am. I'm going home to a wife and kids and I'm at, look, I'm not 20 anymore, like clubbing and I'm a fool. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point because something that I've always wondered is why didn't anyone ever tell me to slow down? Why didn't anyone ever pick, say to me, Kate, your drinking is not good. It's, it's dangerous. It's out of control. 
the one person who said it to me was my mother and she said it in such a nasty way I didn't speak to her for two years um but none of my friends none of my partners even the guy who's shower glass thing I fell through carried on going out with me I mean he's crazy what you know well would it have actually made a difference because would it (laughs) no but because you come across really really really, well maybe he wasn't ready you know like so many people said to me mate your drinking is off the scale yeah I know it's great isn't it like I think you need to be ready uh, in your head. I mean, would you tell someone now? I, I, I don't know, because I think if I saw someone with a problem, I would probably say I was like you, and I would have to say something. No, it's different now, isn't it? someone to stop. It's, it's different. Like, yeah. we know so much more now, and I would frame it in such a way that it wouldn't come across as judgmental, because I know yeah. how that feels. I do understand uh, about the siege, you know, like, uh, you might say something on social media that will plant a seed. And I might, I do understand the power of that, but you feel incredibly similar to me. Like you kind of do what you want to do in your way. Uh, I've always been, I've been really self-sufficient. You know, my mum left when I was 14. Um, my dad met someone really quickly. So I had to grow up quickly. I had to adapt to a million situations. I'm really good at fitting in with all kinds of people as well. So I could go in a pub and there'd be a solicitor. I could have a chat with him, a funeral director, a builder. Like I could adapt to any situation, you know. So I've become really streetwise, really young. Yeah around people you know uh so i could talk my way out of anything i could talk myself into anything you know i was gonna say and that's it i could talk myself into any situation any party any group i could always be the right person for them to go go come with us and and i could hop around wherever i wanted to go i could be adaptable um and that is something that that's that's a unique skill yeah. But that's pretty much all I've learned um, in my life. Well, that's not true. Maybe that's unfair, but it's definitely that I was always watching. And, and when I was aware of what I was doing and, and it's, it's funny because, you know, I've the fact that I drank again and then I had another child. I came back to England and I thought I don't want to be like my parents in that alcohol is everywhere and the kids see me all the time. You know, I'm aware that I haven't, that I want to be someone they're proud of, that they look up to. You know, I don't want to be this drunk person going around going, oh, I understand people, but, you know, well, I haven't really done much with my life. But I still drank and I stumbled and my kids have seen me blacked out. My kids have seen me slurring. They've seen me falling in the curb on the way back from the pub after school on a Friday. And it's, I kept saying I can stop when I want because I could have a day off. If I didn't have that one glass, I wouldn't need any, I wouldn't have those urges. And I didn't drink during the day. So I kept saying to myself, I need it. I don't need it. I want it. But then I knew I was embarrassing myself. I knew that I was not being the mother I wanted to be, but my kids were clean. They were fed. They were happy. I went to all the sports days. I was a good mum. But actually, I knew I am on a slippery slope here because my kids are now 11 and 12 and I was still drinking up until, you know, very recently. Um, And I was waking up every day and my first thought every day was shame, guilt and regret. One of those three things every day for 20 years. If I'm being honest, 
that was my first feeling. And how can you ever be happy when you wake up every day and that's the first feeling you have? You never think, what a beautiful day. I'm really excited about today. It's always about the night before. Um, and that's, I think that's, the, that's kind of where I got up to when I thought I've had enough. I can't keep going like this. What I thought about the girl I was when I was 10, 11, and I was surrounded by these people I admired. And I thought, wow, life is going to be so amazing. And I thought, what have I done? I've literally stumbled through it under the influence of this awful mind altering drug. I've used all, spent all my money on this, on alcohol. And it, it suddenly hit me. Um, and I thought I've got to do something quickly because I'm very, very close to never being able to pull this back. Um, mm. But it was interesting is growing up as children is like the way you painted that house in Hampstead where you had Roald Dow, you know, all these people with their drink. It really does glamorise alcohol, doesn't it? Yeah. This is what you do when you entertain, when you mingle and socialise with your G&T, and, you know, and we know now it's very different from that. And so kids growing up, when they see mummy pouring a glass of wine, it's like, well, mummy needs to relax. It's that image that yeah. we're painting to our kids growing up when actually mummy needs it because I can't go without it. Or, yeah, you know, it's, it's so fascinating when you really look at it. I, I always talk about romanticising alcohol, you know, like when, yeah. for instance, uh, a hot day, uh, in a pub garden and, and we say oh a lovely pint and we imagine the dew running down the glass sun oh, yeah. and you know like oh I'm gonna hunker down because I've found a place in the garden in the sun and yeah. this is it for the afternoon not actually in three hours you're going to be blind drunk rowing with people in the street yeah. and falling over that's the reality of it you know it really is. And it, it, that's what makes me cross is that how can we still live in a society where there's an event, for, every event has alcohol associated with it, whether it's Bloody Mary for a brunch or champagne for a celebration or white wine for a barbecue, uh, red wine in front of a fire. Why doesn't anyone say there are millions of people dying every year? This is a drug. And I I walk around now and I, I see people and I think you're literally drip feeding a drug into your body every day and no one's explaining to you the damage because and I I see it because it was me I was that zombie walking around slowly drip feeding this poison in and it was just stunting me totally from developing and from growing from being aware from seeing things from smelling tasting anything it was keeping me as I was when I was a child before I started drinking I didn't develop at all the way I should have and that's how I see it now and and actually I'm really angry and I when I've had when I've got more time under my belt and I feel like I know enough I really want to fight big alcohol because I I think if you introduced alcohol now it would not be legal would it you they wouldn't be able to sell it the way they do with women kicking their legs in in martini glasses and you know people coming along by swimming pools it's show the reality like they do on cigarette packets know what happens and it's it's shocking i agree and i think you know having these conversations highlights it and uh you know like i work alongside alcohol change uk with this breaking stigma shame and whatever and you know labeling on bottles where it just says uh drink you know drink aware they have their statement drink mindfully and whatever you know 
it is ludicrous. But um, that's a whole new conversation. <laughs> yeah. So when you stopped, was it your first attempt? No. Um, I got... I stopped about a year before during lockdown and I tried to do a 100 day challenge on sober Easter's with Lucy Rocker's thing. And, and I did quite well. I did two months and then it was sunny. I had a barbecue. I was bored to death. I was homeschooling. It was just, I was bored, bored, bored. And I just thought I'm going to have a glass of wine. And that was it. I then drank heavily again for six months. It didn't it didn't take me weeks and weeks. That one glass meant the next day I drank and the day after the day after I was totally back to where I was. It was done. And I just thought I can't go back to day one. I did so well. I did 64 days or something. And the thought of starting again doesn't interest me. I tried it. Um, But actually, I was really disappointed with myself and I was sad. But I was. I I was just enjoying drinking again. And I just thought, well, I've done two months. I've proven that I can do two months. I'm not an alcoholic. It's like, that's not the point, Kate. The point is, if alcohol is affecting you negatively in your life, it doesn't matter if that is one glass a week. You have to stop. And, and it's that mentality that I think, I hate the word alcoholic. And am I an alcoholic? People Google it or they say, well, I only drink this. It's like, it doesn't matter. If it negatively affects you, it's bad for you, like everything else. But with alcohol, we kind of try and justify it. We we come up with all these different equations and, and mixing it, put some lemonade in that wine or, you know, only drink at this. I had to change the way I thought about it. And to be honest, it happened. And it was a kind of a revelation. I got I, I got really, really drunk on the 20th of December last year. Christmas so 2021 and I pulled my phone out and I started recording myself and I spoke for about half an hour and I was sobbing and I was in a complete state and I am not a crier I'm not emotional you know I'm I'm very a very loyal friend and I'm a very caring person but I'm not one of those people who all come and give me a cuddle I'm stoic about it or whatever but I just broke down and I was sobbing and I was saying stop doing this to me and I was talking as if I was a different person but I was leaving a message for myself and I said I'm not happy I don't like this and I thought it was it was I haven't watched the whole thing through but it's incredibly emotional for me to see it because I am in such a state that I am speaking really clearly about, I, I am saying, this is not good. Don't do this to me anymore. You're poisoning me. Look at me. I'm not happy. I can't speak. And actually, it worked because oh. the next morning, and I couldn't really remember what I'd said, I, I watched some of it and I felt so sick and embarrassed and mortified. But actually, listening to myself beg myself to stop hurting me it clicked. It oh, finally really clicked. Powerful. Yeah. And it's, I've shown a few clips, not with voice on Instagram. And I've shown the pic, the, the, some of the video of me. Um, and I still haven't watched it all because I, I know I will burst into tears. I'm getting very emotional just thinking about it now. Um, but it's, it's almost like the child. Yeah. Begging, and saying you're in control of this Kate you're yeah. doing this to yourself and no one else could have told me that because your defenses go up immediately and you say yeah. don't you tell me what to do blah, blah, blah. well that's but why actually, I asked you that question earlier 
Yeah. You, know? you can't argue with yourself. No. So I had to stop, listen, and take it in because it was me. And I have not had a drink. I have not had a sip That's of alcohol. Amazing. Do you know what? I put a picture on Instagram the other day and I found it of me in Portugal just before I stopped. And I look at that picture now with absolute sadness and, and love for that man that I, I, it's like I'm looking at someone else, even though it's me, but I can see what I've done to myself over the years. Gradually, you know, my poor food choices, my medication I was on for my mental health, my chronic drinking. I mean, it was completely out of control. It was like a complete act of self-destruction. Yeah. And I just want to hug the man and say, listen, you're okay, mate. You are okay, but you need to sort it out now, mate, because if you don't, you you ain't going to be for this world. And it sounds to me that's what happened to you with that video, to see yourself. Because let's face it, right, the next day you wouldn't have remembered it unless you'd have recorded it, right? Exactly. To see it, I quite often I'd think, I wonder what I would look like if I had a a camera on the the mantelpiece videoing me with my vodka. You know, like like you speed it up over the hours and hours and hours and where I would just end up slumped over like passed out yeah. it would be really sad and it sounds to me that's what you did and that's it is. really powerful it, it was powerful and actually I felt I felt all of the courage and and the knowledge and you know I I am a smart person I am not an academic I'm not very well educated I haven't got degrees I'm not academic at all but I'm a smart person I'm streetwise and if there was ever a disaster you would want me there because I'm Mm. calm and I I look at things and I think I got to the point where I said you you need to take control what is going to have the impact because it's either going to be an accident which is going to be horrific and it's going to injure you or someone you love and it's going to be your fault because you're drinking or you've got to do something. And I think my subconscious, even though I was two bottles of wine in, said, this will do it. And I and I just pulled out my phone and I did it. And, and thank God I did, because I wouldn't, nothing, I can't think of anything else that would have had that impact. And actually, a few people have since said to me, I did the same thing. And I filmed myself and it was so repulsive or so mm-hmm. depressing, not necessarily talking, but just drunk and slurring that it has had the same impact. And I think it's it's a good way and it's a private way because it's humiliating. Mm. Being drunk is absolutely mortifying. The things you do, the, the the regrets you have, having to apologize for something when you don't remember it. It's like having to apologize for something that someone else has done. But you can do this privately. You can talk to yourself. You can see yourself. And for me, that's why it works because actually it was – the beginning of me feeling a sense of pride, a sense of achievement. And I cannot tell you, Dave, how that has grown in the last 300 days. I always thought I was a confident person, but I have never, ever loved myself. And I do now. And it it is so eye-opening. And it's everything I always wanted, but I was never, ever, ever going to get if I was drinking 10 bottles of wine a week, which is what I was doing when there was nothing on. You know, that was just me and a normal week in mm. suburbia. So I, I just, something had to happen and it had to be dramatic, but I didn't want anyone to get hurt. And for me, that worked. And mm. it has just been 
life-changing. It's been the biggest thing that's ever happened to me, giving up alcohol. And I had no idea it would be so far-reaching. I thought it would literally be me not drinking in the evening. I didn't realise it would affect my work, my relationships, how I've lost a stone without trying purely because I'm not guzzling a thousand calories a night. You know, I, I'm, I just, everything seems brighter and, and life is more interesting. And, and I've, I've suddenly discovered mornings, which I haven't seen for 20 years. I know. They're real. And they're but amazing. You know what? I've, uh, I haven't been stalking you, but um, you've stuck out amongst the thousands of how you put your story out on Instagram every single day. And uh, the knock-on effect you have on so many is so real to me because you do it in such an authentic way, in a real true way. And people listening to this that know you will agree with me uh, because you say how it is. And that, and that for me is how I... I can't um, do it any other way, um, Dave. I, I can't lie. And I can't, I don't have time for people who don't say it like it is. Life is too short. I don't fit into those groups. I never have. I didn't at school and I don't now. And I love people who will come up to me. One of my friends said to me the other day, hey, are you growing a bit of a moustache? I think you need to look at that. And everyone else went, and I went, I love you, Emma. You're just you. You say it. And I, she didn't mean it to be nasty at all, but I know where I stand with her. And I would never... I would never want to pretend this was some sort of, you know, easy journey and let's make some money from. Yeah. yeah. Because it it is real and there are ups and downs, you know, like I'm nearly four years in, well, I'm four years in January. Right. And, and I talk about the ups and downs because it's not all sober skin and glowing and, and, you know, all that there, there have been some really challenging times for me. And sometimes I've, Especially in the first two years, I've had negotiations with it. It's like, is this forever, blah, blah. But I have rolled my sleeves up because what are the alternatives, right? Because I know for me and for you and for millions of others, if you go back to it, you are right back there really quickly. Like within days or weeks, you're going to be back straight on that hamster wheel and that. So it's about being real about that as well. It's accepting the rough with the smooth. Like I've often talked about riding the bike uphill. You either get off and get an Uber back or you keep pedaling, get your head down because the view at the top is going to be different. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's about saying that out there as well. Not all like... I've had my teeth done and like, you know, oh, there's this, this holiday out there. It's about the real nitty gritty at times. And there's a lot of people that really struggle internally. And the more we talk about it, the more they can relate to it. And there are the seeds that we can plant that people can go, do you know what? I saw Kate's real the other day and uh, it was really powerful, you know, and and that's what I think you're brilliant at. And I said to you a few weeks ago, your reels are spot on because they're not, I, I mean, I have a thing about certain reels that I see and I just don't, it's not my age, right? I promise you. I'm quite young-minded, but I just don't understand them. Like they don't, I don't know how they help people 
to no. be honest. But uh, that's- I mean, I'm, I like having fun and, and that hasn't changed. And, and I I can laugh at myself. And, you know, I laugh at, I think with, with Instagram, I use it to remember what it was like when I was drinking. But then I'll also say I'm just really struggling today and I'm, I'm out walking in the rain because I need to be away from the house. And it's if, if I was just one person, everyone would know. And then you just don't trust people. And also, I, I set the Instagram account up for me as well to be accountable. I didn't, I'm not worried about how many people follow me. I'm doing it because if I'm out there every day saying something, I'm less likely to drink because I cannot go back. Mm. If I go back, it will be the end. It will be awful because I know I'll give up inside. And, and I, I'm so happy and it scares me to think of of anything that might happen that might push me there. But as you've said so many times, the community is the most honest, caring, generous community out there. And they have saved me without a doubt, including you. Um, And it's only through listening to authentic people talking about things and saying, I am not alone. And that makes that makes so much difference in Mm. the world with everything. But with this, especially. It really does. And and your kids, like, how are they now with you? Uh, they're great, and they actually leave notes whenever I have, uh, like, nine months or ten months sober. Oh. They leave me notes, um, and they tell their friends, my mum doesn't drink alcohol anymore. They're, they're willing to be in my Instagram videos, which is rare for kids that age, but yeah. they're so proud of me, um, and I'm very open with them. Again, I have no filter. I can't pretend so I say alcohol was bad for me and did you did you struggle and they was like yeah it was always fun at the beginning but then we could tell it was going to get you know and then we'd get a taxi home and you were loud and you and dad would argue and and it's I need to hear that from them and I need them to hear me say I've changed and I I think they're young enough and I I I think you can do this at any age yeah but I feel like they will know me as a non-drinker when they become adults and they'll see but they'll understand how dangerous alcohol is and what it can do yeah definitely the education's everything you know and I've talked before about that talk I did in the college and I'm going to do another one uh early next year as well uh the impact of that knowledge that we can give them without judgment without like telling them what to do, you know, I, I merely said, you know, you don't have to get drunk and have a good time. You can have a, a really good time without it. Or don't be afraid to say no if you've got a big exam in the morning. And this is what uh, the effects of alcohol can do because we all go on about labelling and stuff like that. But we're there to uh, let people know the, the dangers, you know. And, and the more of us that talk about it openly, the more people understand it. And I'm, I'm sure there's... There's so many people listening to the podcast now that are still drinking, but they're on the cusp. You've already said about the video, which I think is really, really powerful because photographs as well, you know, looking back at your drunk photographs at the time you're drinking, it's, oh my God, look at me. I was all right. I'll stay and whatever. Right. But when it becomes a real problem, you look at it with shame and embarrassment. Right. What, advice could you give to people on the cusp now that are sort of sitting on the fence knowing that they've got to do something but they're not quite sure what would you say to them it's a really tricky one because I want to say something that everyone will go yes but I don't think that exists we're all different um but I do think joining a group even if it's finding a few people on Instagram because there's several people who who send me a direct message every morning with their day count. They're in the, the early weeks. And I just said every morning, just send me 
day 10, day 11. And that has helped massively. So if you have to be accountable, even if it's to one person and, you know, give yourself, set yourself a day and a number of days and try it. If you think you won't be able to do it, even more reason you should. And if you think you can do it, then fantastic. Do it and see how you feel. It, mm. It's a win-win situation. There is no, you know, you can't you can't lose and you will be amazed at the differences. And, you know, I've made some real friends in this community and life is just better in every way. How on earth can you argue with that advert? No, 100%. And, you know, in the beginning, I went to AA meetings and I sat at the back and that really helped me. And then... After a while, I realized it wasn't for me. But in the initial stages, it worked. And it worked for hundreds of thousands of people. There's Smart Recovery. There's uh, like my app. It's got a great community there. That's not a plug, but I suppose it is. Uh, oh, I talking like you're you do a lot of coaching. And I think hearing yourself say things to someone in a private space is is so valuable because, again, it's hearing yourself say things you're not being told you know and even you asking me questions here and listening to me and me hearing myself explain it to you it's so beneficial because Mm. I'm not being told by someone else I'm hearing it and and it it, I will remember that and it has an impact so I think coaching is is really good as well I think it's a great thing a great starting point do you know what a lot of people come on and they just start crying and they feel embarrassed. And I say, please don't, because you're letting yeah. years and years of shame, anxiety, because how many people can we actually have that open conversation with, you know, unless they understand? Uh, and I think that's a really good point, actually. There are amazing coaches out there. And to be able to just sit there peacefully like we are now and have this conversation can be really cathartic. You know, groups, let's not do it on our own. We don't have to. In the old days, it was just AA, but there's a million communities, Facebook groups, Instagram groups, apps, you know, so many communities uh, by speaking the truth, being true to yourself as well and seeing alcohol for what it actually is. You know, let's not glamorize it as this thing that, you know, good day, bad day, any old day. It helps me relax. It gives me confidence. It's actually, you know, all very short-lived. And let's see it for what it is and keep spreading the word. And I want to ask you before we go, because it's coming up to the hour now, how about the next 300 days? What, what does that look like to you? Oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through the year and then I'm going to do something. I mean, I've, I feel lucky that I've managed to do these 300 days without any big trauma or drama. And that's worried me a bit. I think I posted about it recently. But I I want to, I've always been someone who likes helping other people. And there are lots of, of people out there who are writing incredible books, who are doing coaching. I want to fight against this trickle of lies that is coming into the, and I don't care if I say, look at me, look what happened to me. And I was someone who no one said, you've got a problem. Awareness is my passion I want people to to see it and I don't mind humiliating myself or saying this is what happened to me if it helps other people realize how damaging alcohol is because it is a terrifying scary substance and it's something you can buy in buildings on every road and it's that's even more scary so I, I really want to have a voice I want to speak out and I want to just say be aware of what this can do to you um, and understand that there are options 
That's that's my uh, small idea. That's a big idea, and (laughs) and, uh, I think it's amazing. I think you're amazing as well, and I can see you doing that. You have such a voice out there, and I think you're brilliant. And I've really, really loved this podcast. Um, I'm so glad you're on my first episode of Season 8. So thank you so, so much. Thank you, I've absolutely loved it. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And um, I will put all your details in the show notes, how people can find you uh, and follow you. And thank you so much. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget, you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One for the Road, It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.